0: amen go ahead and have a seat church welcome to NBC for joining us online we're glad to have you with us and those of you who are here live let's go ahead and get our bibles and bible apps open to revelation chapter one as we get kicked off this morning a 10-week journey hope you had your b vitamins and your caffeine and all that good stuff so your brain is firing on all cylinders uh, as we get going um wh- i want to say one thing real quick here art the graphic artwork on this series Is extra good to me. Uh, DJ Iverson killed it on this. Our beloved associate pastor. Um, Yeah, give him a hand. Um, At some point, I'm going to have him come up and explain to you some of the 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 background for all this. But in one way, shape, or form, the every single uh, symbol that is present in the Book of Revelation is represented in that graphic in some way, shape, or form. So you can imagine the amount of care and that went into it. But the yeah, go DJ. It's exactly right. Uh, and so it was an incredible piece of, of artwork, and of course we love creativity here at NBC. Um, and, but it's easy then if I tell you that for you to go, okay, let me see how many of these things I can find, and immediately start to zoom in and to try to find all the little tiny pieces that, that make the graphic what it is instead of looking at it before I told you that information, back and going, okay, uh, that's a great piece of artwork. Look at that. That's kind of cool. right? Um, you can do the same thing with, with Revelation, and you can fail to see the big picture if you get too into the details of what's going on. Now, I'll explain. We've got 10 weeks to sort all that out, okay? But today, what I want to do is just kick us off, give us an introduction to the book. I'll let you know kind of the approach we're going to take in general overall, and look at chapter one, all right? That's, that's our agenda today. John Ortberg said, he said, There are three things, three topics that in any church, if you want to gather and keep a crowd, that you can preach on at any time. He said, Number one is sex. Two is the end times. Three is will there be sex in the end times? <laughs> he said, <laughs> um, I, love, I, love, I love the way that he approaches uh, the book just kind of at the outset with a little bit of humor and tongue in cheek and. Uh, he's right in the sense that, that people are fascinated with Revelation. And it's a book that's full of mystery and intrigue. And people have debated back and forth when it was written and what it's for and what all the symbolic language inside of it means, as well as the when and the how of the second coming of Christ, how that's going to take place. Uh, others spend a lot of time trying to crack what they believe to be the Revelation code, if you will. This much is true. The book of Revelation was was written by God to reveal, not to conceal. That the point of it is to reveal something that can be comprehended and taught and passed around and used to encourage. It was never supposed to... God didn't put it down to try to hide things from us. He didn't try to say, all right, well, let's see if you can crack this, then maybe you can understand what I'm trying to say. If anything, Revelation is extremely bold. It's not as clear as other books are to us as good... 21st century Americans, Uh, we tend to miss some of the symbolism, but as I'm going to point out a little bit later, if if they were reading it, they would be able to understand a lot more than we do as they read it. Revelation is a recounting of a vision that God gave to the apostle John. It's given to seven churches that John knew and loved and helped them to help them grow and to continue steadfastly as disciples through times of persecution, and particularly to stand against the winds of culture that were trying to pressure them into conformity to the world around them at the time. You really have two uh, schools of thought on Revelation that are big here in the States. Okay, The first is what you'd call futurism. Futurism is uh, a lot of Baptist churches, Calvary chapels, places like that bring a futuristic approach to Revelation, and they, uh, the idea there is that most of what you read in Revelation is yet to happen. It's coming in the future, hence the name. Okay. Uh, Now that is a fairly small, from a global perspective, much smaller than its kind of counterpart preterism, which is the idea that much of Revelation has already taken place. And while there may be some futuristic elements to it, the bulk of it was written at the time. So what you're reading is symbolic language to talk about something that was going on at the time, uh, just like you would read other prophecies in the Bible were kind of written about events that were closer to the time. Preterism would be uh, held by uh, Catholics, Presbyterians, all Reformed churches, uh, most Methodist churches, but not all. A lot, The ba- vast majority of people on the planet are preterists in how they approach the book, okay? So think about it this way. Futurism has to do with the future. We think Revelation, the bulk of it's coming. Preterism is more of a uh, historical approach, that what we're reading is an apocalyptic or symbolic kind of uh, literature that's kind of encased in, in the, the form of an epistle in its own way. All right, so uh, I'm gonna lean that way, all right, with the understanding that uh, Christians can disagree on these things. It's really not a, a, uh, a matter of salvation or anything like that and it's pretty easy for people to read Revelation and not um, you know, be able to comprehend absolutely everything that's there in the book but the big overarching principles of revelation are shared by both sides and that's we're going to we're going to camp out there all right in in the bulk of things now we'll get to the some of the ones that everybody wonders about all the time the mark of the beast and 666 and all these kinds of things we'll deal with it in a little bit of, of greater detail but by and large we're not going to get into uh, just every little piece of minutia that's out there, uh, because again, when you do it, you start, you start getting too close to the television, and you can't really see what's going on when you do it. Now, here in chapter one, uh, we, well, let me pause there. There's, you have two schools of thought, but you also have two mistakes that people make when they kind of approach Revelation. One is they get obsessed with it. They get diverted from the heart of our faith because they get obsessed with speculation. So, for instance, in the mid-80s, 1988 to be particular, there was a man that came out with a book that was widely read in churches called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. This was his reasoning. We cannot know the day or the hour, but we can know the month and the year. That's how he thought about it. Then when it didn't happen in 1988, he came out with a sequel. Why it will happen in 1989. And then there was a book written after that, that I like a little bit better called 99 Reasons Why We Can't Know When Jesus Is Coming Back. So there are other people who would reason, okay, we can't know the month or the year, but we might know the generation, or we might know the era. And uh, it always seems to be the generation that the writer is living in. Another writer wrote how he was overwhelmed by what he saw. He wrote this, desolating earthquakes, sweeping fires, Distressing poverty, political profligacy, that's a good word, by the way, private bankruptcy, and widespread immorality, which abound in these last days, obviously indicate the Lord is returning immediately. Those are written by William Miller in 1843, who tragically, this is a tragic era in church history, uh, brought thousands with him to a hillside because he thought God was going to return right then. He did not, and it was called, to this day in church history, it's called the Great Disappointment. William Miller became his teachings in that era, kind of began the the foundations of what we now know as the Seventh-day Adventist church. So this kind of thing happens from the early centuries of the church right down to our day. There was a bestseller written in the 70s that said the key date was 1948 because that's when Israel became a country, predicted the world would end within one generation. That's 40 years. That day came and went, so the writer said, no, it was really 1967. That's kind of when they had another uh, kerfuffle over there in Israel, so it was then. we be in a generation of that. I didn't have neither." Another writer that I read about wrote, the building blocks for the new temple in Jerusalem had been constructed and numbered and are being stored in basements in Kmarts all over the United States until it's time to get shipped over. <laughs> Kmart's out of business now. So somebody needs to go. They may have those down there, right? Now, I'm I'm taking extreme views of one particular way to illustrate a point. There are a lot of very thoughtful, very great biblical scholars that that are over on that side of the the ledger, okay? But when you get caught up in trying to crack the code, you miss the message of the book. That the point of it is not to try to figure out when are all these things going to happen, but to figure out, okay, what is it? And this is, this is good for interpreting the Bible at any point in time. There's an old saying in the Bible, or in biblical interpretation, that says it cannot mean for you what it never meant for them. You need to go, we have to go back and go, okay, how would they have read this? How would they have understood it? And then take our lead from that. With all this speculation uh, and, and the, as many strikeouts as we've had over the years, my concern is that like the boy who cried wolf, we're going to get we're out our welcome to where people are not going to pay any attention to what, what the church says on such matters. And I think when seekers see speculations and predictions that aren't really rooted in a, a really bolted down in Scripture in a very strong way, they see a lot of speculations, predictions that go unfulfilled. That hurts the overall message of the church because when we start saying, okay, well, this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, then why should they believe us on everything else? And so that piece of it I think we have to be really, really careful with. Jesus is extremely clear in Acts. When one of his followers says, is it time for the coming of the kingdom? Here's what Jesus says. He replied, it's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has said by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, he doesn't just say it there. Back in the Gospel of Mark, he says it. About the day or the hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven, and this is quite staggering, nor the Son, but only the Father. So beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. So Jesus is saying, I will come again, I'm coming coming back, and that is what all Christians should believe. All Christ followers pin their hopes on that hope, on that truth, that this isn't as good as it gets, that we're all not just going to kind of go and expire and the world's just going to burn itself out like some sort of... uh, a cheap candle. That's the hope that sustains us, that someday this world that's rotting away before our very eyes, it seems, is going to be set right one day. All Christians should believe that. The classic language for this in the second coming of Jesus would be, we believe in the literal, personal, visible return of our Lord. He is coming back. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm coming back, so therefore speculate about when or try to figure it out. He says actually quite the opposite, and he says it extremely clearly and forcefully. It's not for you to know. I'm coming back. Be yielded to the Holy Spirit. Be my witnesses. Be about my work. Spread the gospel. Be spiritually awake. Be increasingly alive to God's presence in you. So we're going to take Jesus at his word, and we're going to cling to the hope that he gives us. Now, some people, again, get obsessed with it. And in some churches, that's about all that gets taught. But then there's the second problem, ignoring the book. And I think people ignore it for several different reasons. One is it's not the easiest book to interpret. So there are easier places to go hang out and teach and places that you can see and help people understand that there's, here's some concrete relevancy to what's going on in your life. I think there's that sense of, okay, that's about down the road, Uh, which again, I think is another pitfall of futurism is you think all this is coming down the road. It doesn't have anything to say to us today. Uh, It's profoundly important for the times in which we're living. In fact, I would say um, it might be the most relevant book in the New Testament at the moment because it has to do with the triumph of Jesus, the superiority of Christ to every other kingdom that would put itself up against him and the importance of the endurance of the saints. Revelation 14 uses that language. Uh, A call for endurance of the saints to stand against the forces that would try to get us to conform to the kingdoms of the world. Uh, All the cultural forces and oppositions and things that that are opposed to the gospel, being able to to resist that, push back against it. And to do it, we get a tour through history of things that you don't get. But, you know, you get, kind of get an autobiography or a biography of Satan in Revelation. It's kind of interesting. It's where we get a lot of the way that we view uh, Satan is, comes out of Revelation. Uh, you do get, uh, I mean, just some of the most amazing scenes of worship come from Revelation. The songs that are sung uh, are just breathtaking. The imagery that's there is so rich and so amazing that it lets you know, okay, if that is the picture of what worship is like kind of in the heavenly realms, then how should that shape the worship of the church in the day we're living in? You know, is it really something I should be taking as lightly as I do? Or should it be something different? Should it be um, as rapturous, if you will, as what we read there in Revelation? All right, we got to hustle. Let's get going, shall we? Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Uh, this is composed and will be circulated among these seven churches that are in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. It's composed by the Apostle John, who was at the end of his life, and he had been exiled to this little island called Patmos. Uh, the date is around 94 to 96 AD, probably 95. Uh, Domitian meets his, uh, uh, is, is whacked by his own people in 96, and generally when the regime changes, all the exiles are kind of set loose. And so the theory is that John was released at that point, goes back to his home in Ephesus and lives out his days there until he's, he, ends up, uh, uh, he ends up passing away. So this likely makes it the last New Testament book written. Now, Patmos, I've got a little picture of it here. This is the deserted side of it. If I flip the island around for you, it would look like Catalina. It's occupied, it's got a lot of. A, it's got a little uh, hotels on it. It's got a monastery there. And then the shot on the right is from the cave of John where they think he might have been when he, when he wrote Revelation. It's a little island, 10 miles by 6 miles at its widest point. Uh, we often picture John as being alone on the island. That's highly unlikely. Uh, the odds were it was actually where a lot of prisoners were. And they divided them into the imprisoned, people who were caught in a jail cell. Those are typically the most dangerous of people. John, because he was sent there for... Uh, preaching, he was being persecuted, and in all likelihood, we don't know this for sure, but the likelihood is there were mines there that the prisoners would have to work in when they were out there. So John may have been a part of, I mean, an ancient chain gang of sorts, and he would go out and he'd he'd slave away in the mines, and then he'd come back. Now, him being as old as he was, maybe not. So we don't know for sure. But he probably was not alone. Uh, He almost certainly wasn't alone. But there he is, he's out there. Why was he there? Well, here it is, Revelation 1.9, John tells us. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. All right, well, who put him there? Uh, I think the, the evidence is, that is pretty strong that Domitian put him there. Uh, he was the emperor of Rome at the time, this book was written. He signed documents, dominus et deus, Lord and God. He required people to address him that way at times. Coins of the period have him enthroned as father of the gods. And I'm going to show you this coin right here. It's kind of interesting. See, so you got him over there on the left. On the back, and I want you to remember this coin, the, the tails side of this coin. Right? There, that is his son who died when he was young. He's sitting on top of the world, essentially. So he's got him there as a Jupiter figure. Uh, meaning he's 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 uh, over everything, and then around him you see seven stars, all right. And the idea there is that uh, they saw seven essentially planets, stars, and those controlled the fate of people here on the earth. So later on today, when we read our next text, and Jesus is the one who has the seven stars in his hand, I would suggest to you that there's a good chance that what he's doing is taking a swipe at at the emperor here. So. Others have his son uh, you know, with his wife on the front side, so this kind of coinage was, was pretty, pretty common back then. So this, this uh, background information as we approach certain things, so for instance, uh, uh, the mark of the beast that we're gonna talk about. Let me give you a couple of examples of way people have looked at that. Um, one well-known author states that it's about visa cards. Now here's where he goes with this. Uh, he says the VI for visa is the Roman numeral for six, okay? The S is from sigma, he writes, the sixth letter in the Greek alphabet, and the A he thinks is connected to the Babylonian number for six. Okay? Now, I don't know much about Babylonian numbers. I do know that sigma is not the sixth letter of the Greek alphabet, it's the 18th letter. So even in how he spells it out, it's not, it's not, it, doesn't make, it doesn't compute. The deeper truth is that John's not writing about technology. He's not writing about a battle. He's writing about a battle between good and evil. And the mark of the beast is not fundamentally about microchips under your skin and things like that. It's about your loyalty. Where, what, what you do, just like the symbols that are given to the mark of the beast, not to jump too far ahead, but, but in the Old Testament, for instance, when it says bind something on your forehead or whatever, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't it's a way of saying get it into your blood, get it into your system, digest it, make it what you're about. When you take the commands of God and do that, that's what you're doing. So it means you keep your loyalty with the king, not with the beast. And we'll talk about who the beast is and all that stuff as we get there. John's passionate desire here is for his flock, those seven little churches that, you, uh, that, that, uh, that resemble us in so many different ways, and that's where we'll start next week. We'll, we've got the seven churches that he writes to, and he's got a different message for each of them. Some are viewed very favorably. Some of them are, he really goes after them. Jesus has a, a word for the churches. In verse 10 of chapter 1, Jesus tips his hand to John, letting him know that the vision he's about to get is symbolic. It's symbolic, not literal. Chapter 1, verse 10, go ahead and get your Bibles back open. John says, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day and he hears a voice like a trumpet telling him to write down what's about to be revealed and to send it to the seven churches. And we're going to read, this is a little longer, but bear with me. Revelation 1, 12 to 20. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven gold lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen and that are those that are to take place after this. And then he goes, watch this, he goes and he explains to him what he just saw. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so he explains it to him. The first vision he gets, Jesus stops and says, here's what it means. He's saying there's meaning to it. It's it's symbolic. The fact that the first thing John sees in this vision is this, and that it's explained to him, might suggest that other things we will see have meaning as well. Uh, so, for instance, the term Babylon, that comes up, okay? Uh, Babylon, if you, if you read much early Christian literature, Babylon becomes the, the name for Rome uh, from the time of the destruction of the temple, which is represented here in this painting behind me. This happens in 70 AD. They're, it's destroyed by the Romans. This is uh, The artist here is Nicholas Poussin. But from that point on, the Roman Empire becomes known as Babylon in Christian speech. And it's known as such because they destroyed the temple just like the Babylonians had, destroyed the first temple back in 586 or 87, depending on what you like. So that might lead us all going, why didn't he just say what he means? Because John's reporting what he saw. He's reporting what he saw. So he says, write down what you see. His job is not to do all the interpretation for us. It's like, Show us what you're, what you're doing. So he alludes to us being in the last days. And so let's talk about what that means just briefly. Um, let me ask you, do you think we're living in the last days? Yes, yes. Anybody know? Yes? Likely. Good. Okay. Okay. Well, if you say yes, depending on what you mean by it, I mean, you can be, I think it's like right now, it's going to happen, the second coming of Christ is imminent, could happen this afternoon. Or it might be a while from now. The last days, as it's referred to for the most part in Scripture, means anything on this side of Pentecost. Anything on this side of Pentecost. Now, let me explain. Um, as you know, the Holy Spirit descends onto the disciples at Pentecost. They, they begin to preach and speak, and everybody can understand them regardless of their native tongue. So what else was going on? Well, when Peter's there preaching his Pentecost sermon, he quotes... The prophet Joel, Joel 2. And he says, here's what's going on. In these last days, it will be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Okay, this is Peter speaking at Pentecost. He's talking about how God's pouring out his spirit. When's it going to happen? In the last days. First line right up there. In the last days, this is going to happen. So Joel's saying, when this happens, that's how you know the last days are here. Peter then puts his stamp on it saying, so this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. So when you see these things happening, you know you're in the last days. So when did that happen? It happened at Pentecost. Okay. It prophesied in the last days that the Spirit would be poured out. That happened 2,000 years ago. How can we be in the last days? Well, maybe this will help as an analogy. Okay. If I, wanna, if I wanted to go, if I told you that, hey, there's two minutes left in the football game. Okay what you're saying is the clock says there's two minutes left. It doesn't take two minutes to finish the football game, does it? It can take an hour to finish the football game. So saying we're, you're in the final two minutes doesn't mean you have two minutes left on the clock. It means you're now in that section of the game uh, where the play clock does different things. The rules change on this side of the two-minute warning, so to speak. And It's not 120 seconds on your watch. From the time of Pentecost on, we've been in the last days. This is what Peter says. The sign of the arrival of the last days, one of those indications, the Holy Spirit poured out on all followers of God. So, all right, let's say we are When will it be? We don't know. Our job is to stay ready, alert, hopeful, and to continue to witness where we are. Because we might be at one second on the clock, and we might be at 1.59 left on the clock, but we are in the final two minutes. It's almost Super Bowl Sunday, so let's try something football-related, if you will. Um, Don't say who, if you know who's playing in the Super Bowl next week, don't say it out loud. Let me read this to you, tell me what you think I'm saying. I saw 11 warriors coming from the Midwest to make war against 11 birds who flew in from the East. As they made war against one another, time was moving backward. The leader of the warriors had a ball made of leather in his right hand, and on his front was the number 15, and on the back was his number 15, and on his finger was a ring of gold. The fiercest of the birds had no rings of gold on his finger. On his front was the number one, and on his back was the number one. And he made war against the warriors and was victorious. Right? That's not a prediction. I actually think the Chiefs are probably going to win. But but do you understand, right? If you're here, and and with a little bit of context, you can kind of tell uh, what's likely to happen. Um, One more. Uh, In the booth there, can you pull up the the, uh, political cartoon? There you go. Um, So there's this. Now, we as Americans know what this is for the most part. But if I said to you, can you explain that? Write down what you see. You would say, I saw a snake and it was cut into 13 pieces and, uh, and it said at the bottom, join or die. And so, now to a person that's not an American, this makes no sense at all, right? But if you were there, or if I drew you a picture of a donkey and an elephant boxing in front of the White House, you would know what that meant, right? Right? I wouldn't know what it, you know, but somebody in Nigeria would have no idea what it was. It's like, what is this? You know, Why do they have animals running around in front of the White House or whatever? But, but we know what these things mean. Now, not everything. I want to be really clear about this. Not everything. I'm not proposing that everything in the book of Revelation has already happened. There's futuristic elements in the book. There's no question about that. But the lens that you bring to it as you interpret it do shape a lot of what's going on, and it's, and it's full of symbolism because John is reporting what he saw. That's what he's told to do. Revelation is full of symbolism because of that. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. So what does it say? What's the big message? It would go something like this. Jesus is victorious, and he's leading his people to glory. But along the way, trouble finds the people of God. And so it is for people who are able to endure. So when we get down to what's Satan's problem, why does he keep messing with everybody here on the earth? You know, basically, I'll I'll sum it up quickly for you. Uh, He says, basically, Satan's already been defeated. He's like the guy in an old Western who gets shot, and he's fatally wounded. He's laying over in the corner, and he's dead. He's going to die. Everybody knows he's going to die, and he's about to breathe his last. Well, that guy is dangerous. Have you ever noticed how people always turn their back on the guy? they got to go to the counter and have a shot of whiskey before they leave or before they they take him out all the way. Like, why why not finish the job or whatever? So Revelation pictures Satan as this mortally wounded, angry person who's kind of extremely dangerous and is doing whatever he can to, to wreak whatever final destruction he can on the earth because, the text says, he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short. So Jesus is put forth as the victor. What happens at the empty tomb is that's the mortal wound on Satan. And Jesus then leads his people forward and with this rich symbolic language that, that, that drops your jaw, the pictures that are, are given are incredible. Uh, the worship scenes, I'll just give you um, one. There are a sequence of songs that are just unbelievable Uh, recounting and singing at the top of their lungs in beauty and splendor, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And on, on, on they go. And there's a sequence of these songs. And one of the things that jumps out to you as you look at all of the songs, none of them are solos. None of them. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody should ever sing a solo in real life or whatever, but there's something unique because it's about the people of God doing it together. And you see visions of people who are earthly rulers throwing down their their, their crowns. And you see uh, basically everything that we would instill with authority or worth or power in this world bowing itself down in the presence of Jesus. And it just highlights in ways that you can't do by just saying, hey, Jesus is victorious. Sometimes you have to draw people a picture. Sometimes you just got to write a song about it to help them understand fully what's going on. So we're going to go deep. We're going to be respectful and humble as we go. And my hope is that we'll get and, and be able to comprehend this amazing description of things, some of which are to come. Some of it's a description of life as we experience it now. And some of it is, has gone past. But just like everything else in the Bible that has happened, the resurrection's in the past. <laughs> but we still draw... It, uh, intense, we live our lives by that truth as it goes. So whether it's the stuff that's already happened, whether it's the stuff that's happening now, or whether it's the stuff that's yet to come. Picture Revelation is a drama in four parts. Redemption, strength, victory, eternity. And so, as we gather around the Lord's table at this point, we do it together, futurists and preterists alike. And we gather around the table of the lamb who was slain but is not dead, who is alive and greets us here. May the vision of the prophet be true among us, that blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I'd like to, um, as we gather around today, remember these words. We are gathering with bread and cup now to celebrate the one who holds the seven stars in his hands, who has control of all of the things that that determine the fate of all humanity, that is Jesus Christ. It's an awe-inspiring picture. But he is both lion and lamb. He is fierce and meek. He is strong, he is mighty, he is victorious, and he's humble gentle so let's invite the Lord to to bless us now as we reflect on, on his son let us pray our heavenly father with bread and cup we say thank you for the gift of the book of revelation but even more the one to whom it points your son Jesus Christ and how you've used him to create for us a magnificent future Father, for the, the vivid images, for the, the symbols that, that help us expand our vision of how great Jesus is, of how dangerous some of the cultural forces around us are. Father, we ask that you give us the peace that comes with knowing that the victory is ours in Jesus. And we ask now as we take the bread and the cup, Father, that our hearts be filled with gratitude and wonder, and awe, and worship as we take them. We pray this in Jesus' name.